and welcome to the February 2007 podcast of Ordinary Means. You'll find us on the web at OrdinaryMeans.com, all one word there. Uh, I'm Sean Nolan, I'm your host here at Ordinary Means, here sitting at the table with Matt Bowling. Hey Sean, how are you? I'm doing fine, Matt. How are you doing today? Good, how's your New Year going? Oh, my New Year's going quite well, thank you. Good. I've uh, put up some resolutions. You have? I have. I don't know why I'm saying I'm put up them. I'm putting up with some resolutions. Are you really? Is that that why you're wearing that fancy hat? Yes, that's why I'm wearing this ski hat is because I was out running in the 32 degree weather today. Um, Getting those, fulfilling those resolutions. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about the use of catechisms and confessions, uh, not just personally, but the use of them in the worship service. Uh, How can they be used as an ordinary way of building up the body of Christ? And so today uh, I want to begin just by reading a quote from a confession. And this is from the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith uh, written in the 17th century. And if you you have a copy of it that has the uh, what's sometimes called the supplemental documents, which includes the introductions uh, and other uh, documents that go along with the Westminster Confession and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms. In the, in the very front of those supplemental documents, there is an introduction. Uh, some of your confessional versions, some of your reprints may have the, the whole thing. Uh, but I wanted to read a quote. This is from the introduction to the Westminster Confession, and this is signed by, by men whose names you'll know. Uh, many of you know the name of Matthew Poole, uh, Thomas Watson, uh, Joseph Burwell, uh, William Cooper, Thomas Manton. Uh, these were all uh, what we would call the Westminster Divines. These were the, the godly men, the pastors, who came together to, to write what we consider to be the Westminster Confession of Faith. And uh, this is a quote from the introduction to that. Uh, it's a, a wonderful little quote. He says, the, the writers say, Never did any age of the church, and this remember, this is written in the 17th century, uh, never did any age of the church enjoy such choice helps as this of ours. Every age of the gospel hath had its creeds, confessions, catechisms, and such breveries and models of divinity, that is, statements of faith, as have been singularly useful. Such forms of sound words, however they might be decried in these days, have been in use in the church ever since God himself wrote the Decalogue as a summary of things to be done. And Christ taught us that that prayer of his as a directory of what to ask. And so, starting off, I want to set us up to think about some of the objections that people are going to have to the use of confessions and creeds in the worship service. So often, uh, when you come to a worship service, you're, you're thinking, well, we just need to do the Bible. It just needs to be the Bible. We need to be very, very careful. Uh, but, Matt, are there other things we do in the worship service that are biblical, but not necessarily literally the Bible? Uh, like almost all of it? Like what? What are some of the things that we well, do? Well, let's take, for example, the form that our prayers take. Okay. If you look in 1 Corinthians 14, it's very clear that the prayers that are done in worship ought to be edifying. And for them to be edifying, we've said even on this podcast before that they ought to have a healthy dose of Scripture. They ought to be formed by the Scriptures. They should echo the thoughts and the um, emphases of the Scriptures. But uh, but those prayers are 
after all, in our words. Yeah, they are, they're our putting the, the thoughts and the ideas of Scripture into uh, the, what Luther would call the vulgar tongue. Yeah, and what you and I do every week when we stand up on Sunday morning. We deliver what, we've, uh, what we believe with the Belgian Confession, what is the Word of God in preaching that's according to the Word. But you and I are the ones who sit down on the computer and hammer it out every week. That's right. And so there are many things that are biblical that are things that we have put in our own, um, in our own words, that we're the ones who have uh, formulated it, if you will, uh, hopefully according to the word, uh, but it's still our words. Almost all of our hymns and songs, uh, while they certainly reference the scripture, they reference the attributes of God, they reference the things that God has done in Christ, nevertheless, they are the words of men. Absolutely. And, and so when we come to a worship service then, what we're doing is not just repeating what the Bible says. Uh, there was something you and I, both you and I, Matt, had a uh, professor by the name of John Frame. And I, I'm sure many of our listeners will be familiar with John. One of the things that he said in the midst of uh, our classes that really struck me, and I, I continue to come back to it, is he made this statement that meaning is application. And what he meant by that is in order to know something, to truly know something, you must apply it to your life or you must understand how it applies to your life. And until you have done that, until you have applied a truth to your life, until you've put it in your language, uh, carried it out with your hands and your words and your thoughts, you've not really understood it. And so what we do when we come into worship each Sunday is is understand the gospel in new ways by ex- experiencing the gospel with our hands and our senses and our minds and our ears and our voices. Uh, there's, a, there's an experiential element in which the Bible, uh, God, through his word, comes to meet with us in this contemporary instance when we worship together. Well put. Absolutely well put. That's Even the new songs that we've seen in the scriptures, even for our friends who m- might be some only singers, at one time those were new songs. The they songs. Were, the songs. Yes. Yeah, they were self-expression of truth and uh, became corporate expression of truth, which is really uh, what confessions and catechisms are. I think that's why the Bible tells us to sing a new song is not because it only wants us doing the contemporary Right. What's the latest and the greatest, whatever the latest fad is. But when the Bible says sing a new song, what the, what the Bible, what God is saying to us is that he, he wants us to declare his wondrous deeds of today. To not just get stuck in his wondrous deeds of yesterday. But, but the question is, when we bring the confessions, you know, we, you and I were PCA, Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, we, are, we belong to what's called a confessional church. Uh, we hold to a confession, the Westminster Confession, as our statement of faith. And we're going to talk a little bit later about what that means and, and what it means to hold to a confession. But what, why, when we, we bring that in, are, are we, by bringing that confession into our worship service, are we just clinging to the past? I don't think so. I think that we're holding on to the very best from the past. Uh, one of Sean's favorite phrases that I enjoy about music and worship is that we should sing the best of all the ages. 
And I think that uh, confessionally, uh, we do not live in an age, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, that uh, is writing necessarily uh, confessions of equality. Uh, the breadth, the scope, certainly there's things missing that could have been included in the confessions that we use. Uh, our own Westminster Confession has nothing about evangelism or mission, which is unfortunate. Um, but given the context that they were in, we can understand it. So I think that it, it, when we look at confessions and catechisms, we're not trying to uh, subvert the Bible, for sure. We're trying to put it in our own words. And others have put it in apt words, and we're sort of arrogant if we say, well, those apt words that they used to summarize the Bible, but they're not good enough for us. You know, that, that's a good point. We live in an arrogant age. You and I were talking about this beforehand. We live in an age where everybody wants to reinvent the wheel. Uh, I look at the movements going on today in the evangelical church, the emerging church, um, uh, the new perspective, all, all of these things that are that are new in in one sense they're they're old in in another sense and and oftentimes these new things are simply old heresies come up uh reinventing themselves uh, but what we get in the confessions what we have in the confessions is something that guards the church and when a church has a confession that it's said over and over and over again through the years it's not simply an issue, and I, and I know this is a complaint that's going to come, well, you're brainwashed because you've been saying this so much. No, but it's the repetition of a truth so that when the error comes along, uh, we know that truth. You get that in apologetics. There's, there's right. that, that question in apologetics is, do I, do I study the error more or do I study the truth more? And I think where you have to come down is you have to study the truth the most and the error a little so that you understand the error and, and the truth will, will bring that error to light. I think there's also an, an, uh, an, a mistake that's made today, which is to say that if it's new, it's better. Oh, yeah. Uh, I uh, brought this up in a Sunday school class at my church a few weeks ago and, and was booed down because everybody loves the new um, and that we shouldn't... We shouldn't, uh, we, we shouldn't um, avoid the new at our uh, beloved seminary president Bob Godfrey uh, quipped once but it's given me a lot of pause to ponder his quip he said if something has come up in theology in the last hundred years we should look at it with some skepticism uh, the truth as we're going to lay out in some scriptures later is a guard to be deposited it's a, a set uh, the truth, the apostles' teaching, Zach tells us, is a, is a set body of truth. Uh, we gain new insights. We see it differently. Hopefully we gain, as Sean said earlier, a greater and greater appreciation for the gospel, the breadth of the gospel. One man, Harry Readers, put it that we go deeper into the gospel and wider in the gospel, but we can't go past it. And I think that the confessions, hopefully, uh, help us do that. They help us to see um, the broadness and the depth of the gospel, ideally. We talked about New Year's resolutions at the beginning, uh, jokingly. Uh, I read a New Year's resolution of a fellow on a blog this week, and he said his resolution was that he would not read anything newer than 50 years. And he said the, the reason is, is because if it's worthwhile, it'll still be around 50 years from now. And I'll read it then. Now, I'm not sure I'm going to be alive 50 years from now to read it, 
but uh, but he makes a good he makes a valid point. It's it's the point that C.S. Lewis made when he said that every time you read an old book or every time you read a new book, you need to then read an old book because we need to have that balance. We need to have that perspective. We need to have the best of all ages, uh, not only in our singing but also in our reading. And when we leave out the confessions and we just have our contemporary statement of faith written by just our pastor or maybe uh, just our denomination, it's something we miss. And this is, this is an important thing to remember about the Westminster Confession is that the Westminster Confession was written by multiple denominations. It was written by... And a whole bunch of guys. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, uh, who, who who labored for years with that, uh, labored through the scriptures to come up with that, and so what we re- what we really have there in the Westminster Confession is a summary and what, what we would call an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches, and when we let go of of those things, when we let go of that much and that depth of history, um, we're really we're handicapping ourselves. You know, to reinvent the wheel, to just go for the new thing, the the latest fad, whatever, uh, what, you know, whatever the latest church growth book is it's, out on the market. It's really the the triumph of methodology over truth. Oh yeah, it's the triumph of the 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 newest over not the oldest. Certainly, that's not um, what Sean and I are, are attempting to present. Is that we ought to do whatever's oldest. But where there's good things, good people whose shoulders we can stand on, we're fools if we don't. And that's what, the way that we see the confessions is that they're not, uh, they don't replace the scriptures. Hopefully they guide us in summarizing the scriptures for us and for our people as pastors and elders in Christ's church. The things that the, the confessions and the catechisms do is they, they force us to think about the breadth of the Bible's teaching instead of keeping us very narrow on five things that can help us tomorrow morning when we go to our job uh, without something that pushes us to look a little bit broader and to ponder uh, the Trinity uh, and the, the relationships between the persons of the Trinity, we miss um, the beauty of marriage and there could be something n- no more applicable. And yet many times churches are, are avoiding the depth of doctrine that the confessions push us towards to their people's poverty because it is in the teaching of God that's in the scriptures that the confessions summarize um, that people can find growth because it's the word. In this quote that I read from the introduction to the Westminster Confession, uh, they reference that creeds have been around since God wrote the Decalogue. Uh, He's in the creed business. God is in the creed business. God is the, you know, he holds the corner on truth. And so when he came to Moses on the mountain and he said, these are my ten commandments, he wasn't saying uh, in these ten words are everything. He was summarizing what then he went on to explain to Moses uh, as to how it applied to the Israelites in that day and age. And and from that, we can then take and apply uh, the truth of the Ten Commandments to, to later ages. Then you get into the New Testament. Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments in only two. But then, takes his entire ministry and Paul, his entire ministry, to show us what does that look like to love your neighbor in the church or to love your neighbor not in the church. To, to flesh those things yeah, out. Yeah. So God is in the creed business. What are some examples 
Uh, and this is helpful because when you realize that the Bible is full of creedal statements, of confessional statements, you begin to see this is, this is something I need to be about. I need to be thinking about truth in, I need to be thinking about propositional truth. How do I state truth in a way that opposes error? How do I state truth in a way that affirms my faith? How do I state truth in a way that exalts God? How do I state truth in a way that shows me who I really am and enables me to see my sin? You know, these are all things that the confessions do, and by bringing these confessions into and making them part of our worship service, I'm sure we'll talk about that in a few minutes here, how we actually make them part of the worship service. By doing that, like you said, Matt, we're broadening, broadening our scope, we're thinking about the whole counsel of God, mm-hmm. and not just one or two particular things. Now, the complaint comes, how much, I mean, how many people, how, how often have you sat in a worship service and said, you know what, this has nothing to do with what I'm going through this week? Pretty frequently, actually. But And I think it depends on how you deploy it. I think that a one-time drop into a worship service is always challenging for anybody, no matter what the style is or whatever, because you're not in the midst of the warp and woof of what that church is necessarily going through. Um, ideally, I think as we'll, we'll say a little bit later, you can use catechisms either serially, like um, Lectio con- you Continuous. Mean, you mean posting them on the back of cereal boxes? Yeah, exactly. No, just that, okay, this year we're going to go through the shorter catechism in 52 Sundays, and that means we need to hit two or three questions a week. And last week it was questions three and four. This week it's going to be questions five and six. That's what I mean by serially. Some congregations will use it that way, and that exposes you to the breadth of truth. Um, Other congregations, this is the the pattern that we use, will use the confessional standards in a way that links to a theme of the sermon. So topically. Topically. Um, And so this is used in services typically uh, in the same way that the readings are used used, the scripture readings. Some people will read through books irrelevant of what's being preached on. Some people will select selections from the other testament that reinforce the teaching uh, that will be preached from the other testament. So I'm preaching through Mark right now, and typically I'll pick a chapter from the Old Testament where a similar theme is, is uh, introduced. You can do that with the confessions as well. That's the way that we use them. But what that forces you to do is that we're uh, a lazy age intellectually, and we think that if it doesn't have cash value tomorrow morning, hmm. it's not worth it to me. Hmm. Where the pastor, the elder in Christ's church has to have a bigger view of people's maturity than what they need tomorrow morning. Which is that the challenge is going to come 15 years down the road to this person. That they want to be able to greet with maturity means that they need to learn the whole counsel of God. Not just what is what's well, got cash value tomorrow morning when I go back to my job. Not that we should uh, avoid that. We should always try and help people see the scriptures are absolutely relevant. We don't need to make them relevant. We need to show people that they are relevant. Um, but not to the point where we avoid exposing them to the entirety of the truth. By bringing the confessions, by bringing the, the creedal statements, by bringing uh, the catechisms uh, into the worship service, uh, we're forcing people to think about, or we're asking people to think about things uh, that are the most important things. And I think that's part of what we miss in this day and age where, we, like you said, we want something that has ca- cash value tomorrow morning or, or 
even this afternoon, right. you know, how many of us have been halfway through a worship service, and I'm saying this as a pastor, sitting halfway through a worship service, and I'm thinking about what am I going to have for lunch? You right. know, what can I get done this afternoon that, uh, you know, that I'm allowed to do on the Sabbath? Uh, you know, that, that's, that's the thought that's coming to my head, maybe if it's a it's particularly uninteresting sermon. But what we're called to do, and, and really for this I would recommend the last two podcasts we did, which is each of us, that the fault lies not so much with the worship service that's calling you to understand the whole counsel of God. The fault so often lies with us, right? where we are not coming prepared, we're not adequately putting into that service uh, what we need so that we do get out of it uh, what we need. I just, just picked up a copy of um, uh, A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. Great book. Great book for thinking about the, the patience of God, the love of God, the, uh, the judgment of God, the kindness of God. I mean, all these, those are his attributes. Right. Well, thinking about the attributes of God has direct, to use your phrase, cash value for my life. Because I am made in the image of God, and I'm a reflection of that God and of his kindness and patience, or I'm not when I sin a reflection of those things. So if I'm coming and I'm getting the breath of who God is, and that's really, if you want to summarize the confessions, uh, they're a summary of who God is and what he's done. And what the and who we are and what God calls us to do out of gratitude. Exactly. But, but that's all based on who God is. Right. We exist because God exists. If God didn't exist, we wouldn't exist. And it's putting, the confessions help us to put that in proper perspective. Absolutely. This service, this worship service, is not about me. It's about God. Right. Now, it might be about what God wants to do in me, but it's got to start with him. Right. And it all right. flows down from him. And <clears throat> by bringing the confessions in, what we do is we force people to think about those big picture ideas, uh, to think about who God is and how then that that does affect me. Um when we talk about the confessions, often what we'll do in, a, in our service, because we'll have people visiting uh, who, are not, who may not be familiar with, uh, right now we're going through the Heidelberg Catechism, and we've been doing this, it's a year-long process. We've been doing this uh, probably, I, I think we've been about six or eight months doing this now. And we'll have visitors who come in, and they, they've never even heard of the Heidelberg Catechism, and so we'll often introduce it by reminding people we're not doing this because we think that this confession is above the Bible. Uh, we're not doing this because we believe in man's words over God's words. We're simply doing this because we believe that this confession contains within it an accurate summary of what the Bible teaches. And the important word there, obviously an important word is accurate. Hopefully. We're, yes, yes. We're, not gonna, we're not going to repeat something aloud we're not going to put it upon people's consciences. We're not going to ask the congregation to say something that we do not believe is biblical. That's an important point. But also that it's a summary. If we want to talk about the, um, if we want to talk about the, the, the patience of God or, or, or the character of God, the attributes of God, um, or we want to talk about the Trinity, We'd have to read a whole lot of scripture, scripture references to get that big right, picture. Right, yeah. But what the confessions do is they give us a statement that we can all confess aloud 
And in making that statement, we affirm the Trinity. Now, I, I think of... You know, we may want to, for some listeners, just distinguish between a confession and a catechism. You know, that's a good point. Uh, it, when we talk about the... Uh, and you can these are available online. You might just go to uh, reform.org, and, yes. and you'll find... Uh, all of the representative uh, confessions that flowed out of this the 16th and 17th century uh, Reformation. But when we talk about a confession, uh, a confession is divided into chapters. Each chapter uh, covers a particular topic. There are usually one or more paragraphs in the chapter that detail uh, the particular doctrine that, that, is, in the, that is for that chapter. Uh, and it's in pure proposition form. Uh, this, not that. And it's referenced, uh, sometimes phrase by phrase, uh, with footnotes as to what scriptures led uh, the authors of the confession to make uh, that summary phrase of a particular teaching of the Bible and they reference it for you so that you know where did this come from. These are not things that came out of men's minds, but many times, particularly if the King James Version, as you're reading the Westminster, is something that's familiar to you, you'll hear phrases all the time that are straight out of the scriptures. Now, a catechism is seeking you to know, do a... Matt, s- before you go into catechism, I want to tie into that, because okay, I was go going to read... Um, this is chapter 2 of the Westminster Confession, and the title of the chapter is Of God and of the Holy Trinity. And you make this point about how much scripture is just infused into these confessions. Uh, this, is, this is just the first sentence. It says, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, Almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now that was just one sentence, but what I want to draw out of that is every word in that sentence had a footnote to a scripture reference. That's, that's a glorious, that is such oh, a glorious summary. Uh, just of reading who God that, is. of who God is. In order to get Here's why we think confessions are wonderful in catechisms. In order for a brand new Christian to get that about God, they would probably need to read the scriptures over two or three times to get all of that. The entirety of it. At least. Whereas, and we want them to do that. We're not saying read confessions and don't read the Bible. We want people to do both. But it's a a, uh, correlative process. When I go in... At night, and my four-year-old is scared of the dark, and, and I pray for him, the language that I remind him of is the language of the catechism. Because in the catechism we read, and I ask him, Jesse, where is God? And it, you have to have a video to see this of what it looks like around the bowling table with three boys, because this is a, this is a, uh, a, a full human interaction answer to a question. It, it requires the entire body. But I'll try it for you. Is it, the, in the Children's Catechism, where is God? God is everywhere. Now, in order to get that, 
by itself from the scriptures would take you some time and some analysis and some deduction. But because we did it through the catechism, when we read the story about Joseph, as we did the other night, and, and Joseph is going through and he's in jail, and, and you can say to one of my boys and say, well, is God there with Joseph in jail? And they'll say, yeah, God is everywhere. And we'll come back later and Joseph himself will affirm that. And so there's a correlation between the summary and the story. And I think that both are, are needed in that the summary helps us go to the scriptures, not with uh, jaundiced glasses, but with clarity that we can see the truth uh, that we ought to, to distill and see in the story. And that clarity in turn guards, uh, it guards the truth. I, I mentioned this earlier, we haven't gotten here yet, maybe this is where we need to go next. As we're talking about confessions, uh, we'll, we'll talk about what a catechism is in just a moment. As we talk about confessions, uh, where do we find confessions in the scripture? Now, we mentioned the Decalogue right? Um, as, as, a, as a summary of God's law. Uh, but we, we also find uh, statements of faith, confessions, in, in multiple places in the scripture that then uh, take us back to this understanding that there is propositional truth that is reaffirmed over and over again in scripture. Now, the Decalogue is a great example of that. Right. Uh, but you also find just some references here, Philippians 2. Philippians 2 has an amazing Christology, a statement of who is Jesus. Similar to the way the Westminster Confession just said, this is who God is. Uh, in Philippians 2, I don't know, Matt, do you have, do you have that there? Um, in uh, Philippians 2, we have this picture of Christ as the fulfillment of the ages, Christ as uh, the only chosen one of God, as the creator, as the redeemer, uh, as the one in whose, whose blood that we are saved, and it's, and it's posited as a creedal statement. Um, Paul gives you an exhortation here, beginning of verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then a fair number of commentators, and I think this is the right way to view it, see beginning in verse 6 of Philippians chapter 2, that here is a sort of a, a, a proto-confessional statement, an early uh, confessional statement, uh, and I'll, I'll read it for you. This is out of the, uh, the NIS. Um, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not grasp equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue and every tongue, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now, you may have that in your Bible in, in, a, in a different, in a quoted text, in a, in a capitalized text, uh, in a way that will show you that we understand that to be a confessional statement that, that Paul is referencing there, that not only is just something Paul is saying, but Paul is repeating something that the church is a phrase, uh, a paragraph of words that the, that the church is familiar with. When you go to Timothy, what does Paul tell Timothy? He says to him, he says to him guard the doctrines, guard the truths uh, that you have been taught. And, um, and then in 1 Timothy 3.16, he says, for by common confession, he acknowledges that what he's about to say is something that the church acknowledges. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then he makes another Christological statement. That is a statement about who Jesus is. Uh, this is... 1 Timothy 3.16, he 
He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. This is that confession of the life, death, and ascension of Christ as the summary of the gospel. Now, Paul at this point could have said, I'd like you all to go back and read the book of Matthew. But he doesn't. He summarizes the book of Matthew or the book of Luke and Acts with this simple one-verse confessional statement. Well, and you have the simplest presentation of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. You reminded me of this. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, that's an important word for Paul, uh, especially if you read the pastoral letters at First and Second Timothy and Titus. You'll find him exhorting Timothy and Titus as they go into these challenging church situations where the truth is under attack, that he talks about guarding this deposit, teaching in accord with sound doctrine, as, as Paul already said, as, I'm sorry, as Sean already said. And so no, Paul, Paul, Paul said it first. Paul said it first, is that there is to Paul, and thus to us, since he's inspired of God, Something, a body of teaching uh, that is identifiable, that has to be guarded. I, I think of Acts chapter 2, and they talk about that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that there was something that was identifiable out there. Paul gives us a hint of what that is regarding the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And so we, what we find here is a summary that Paul is doing, confessing the faith, not in proclaiming to somebody, but reminding people that he'd already ministered to. Here's the summary. Here's what you've got to grab onto. Um, and so summarizing is not uh, an illegitimate endeavor. In fact, it's inevitable. Well, again, it's what we do when we preach. It's what we do when we sing. It's what we do when we pray. All these things we're doing in the worship service are summarizing the great propositional truths. So when we bring the confessions in, uh, when we bring the catechisms into the worship service, it's a way that all of God's people, and this is how we often do it, is we do it as a call and response. We ask the question of the catechism. And then the people respond. Uh, we read all, the whole congregation reads the confessional statement, like the statement I read about God earlier. We read that together, and we affirm these great truths. And we affirm, just as Paul is saying in each of his letters, calling them to affirm these truths and to be reminded of these truths, that's exactly the thing that we're doing. Now, a catechism is a little bit different than a confession. Uh, a confession is a... Is a uh, a book or, or, or a, a document containing these propositional, propositional truths. Another way we could put it is it's a statement of orthodoxy. It's a statement of what we believe. Uh, all the confessions came out of a reaction to heresy, to wrong teaching. Uh, the confessions were responses to this to the false teaching of the day when those were written. And so by affirming these truths, we're also uh, disavowing ourselves of, of false teaching. And, and of, um, I'm thinking particularly the canons of Dort. When, mm -hmm. From that we get what we call the five points of Calvinism. Calvin didn't write them, 
they were a response to Jacob Arminius. Right, right. And to his statements of truth, the church as a whole, all the churches came together and they said, no, Arminius. In fact, having just finished Christmas, I'm reminded of um, a piece that uh, Gene Veith likes to put on his blog every Christmas. It's been in World Magazine, and that is that uh, St. Nicholas... Uh, the the originally a pastor who we get Saint Nick, Santa Claus from, uh, is said to have upon Jacob Arminius making his statement before uh, before the churches is said to have walked up and, and slapped him, <laughs> and said no Jacob that is not true. Uh, so now we have Santa Claus not only as this happy go lucky. A uh, guy with a big beard and a red cap. But a heresy hunter, too. But a heresy, uh, heretic slapper. Heretic slapper. Heretic slapper. So, but here he is before the church trying to defend his position, and the church responds and says, no, for these reasons, this is false. And now we have what's called the five points of Calvinism. Uh, and it's a statement of uh, affirming the truth over against error. And so when we do that as a congregation, we're doing that very thing. Now, it's important to remember that the confessions are not systematic theologies. And, and there's, a, there's a vital difference there. A systematic theology is a, a personal thing. Uh, I think of uh, Louis Burkhoff's systematic theology. Charles Hodge has a systematic theology. There's a lot of systematic theologies out there. And what those are, are um, even John Frame, who we mentioned earlier, has mm-hmm. a systematic theology he's working on right now. Right. And what those are is statements by, uh, works by, by one man on what is truth. What is, how do we understand the truths that the Bible contains in a systematic way? That's not what a confession is. What a confession is, is a public document. It's a statement made not just by one man, but a statement perhaps perhaps put together by a group of men, but then agreed upon by a vast group of men. I, I think of the Together for the Gospel conference last year uh, with uh, Mark, Mark Dever, Ligon Duncan, uh, C.J. Mahaney, Al Mohler, um, they came together and they came up with a statement on justification. Because right now we're facing uh, a huge struggle with the, the federal vision and new perspective on Paul. Uh, is a huge struggle now over the doctrine of justification. It's being challenged in our day. Uh, now there are already confessional statements about justification. But because it's so real today, that conference last year, and, and these godly men made this statement on justification that then uh, men like um, R.C. Sproul, um, John MacArthur, John, MacArthur uh, John Piper, that, that they joined with them on, and indeed many of, I, I believe on the Together for the Gospel site, there's a, a sign-up for all the churches who affirm this. Uh, so we have in our day a new confession, a new creedal statement that's, that's come out to affirm what we've always believed, what, the, what many of the older confessions already say about the doctrine of justification. Um, so these are important things, and the, these are things that we need to remember. So that's what a confession is. A catechism, how is a catechism different? Well, a catechism is set up different than a confession is. There's a similar urge uh, to give a somewhat comprehensive summary um, of at least the main themes of the Scripture's teaching. But the format of it 
is different. Uh, a catechism is set up in a question and answer format where a question is asked and then an answer is to be um, returned in the way that uh, Sean was talking about in his congregation. Um, and I think that it, it, what's useful about it is it's um, it, while it's nice in a congregational setting to be able to uh, publicly affirm together a corporate statement on we did just this past Sunday some of the paragraphs from the Westminster Confession on sanctification. I, as the pastor leading the service, say, what do we believe about sanctification? And the congregation responds with these couple paragraphs from the Westminster Confession of Faith. But around the supper table, it's a little bit harder to respond in a very detailed way uh, in, in the paragraph of a confession. And so what a catechism does is it takes the truths that are covered and breaks them down smaller and puts them in a question and answer format that are easily memorized. And of course, uh, most of our listeners just revolted instantly. They recoiled from their headphones or in their car, and uh, they're having an, uh, uh, heart attacks at the moment that we use the word memorize. Um, but isn't it true that we are always memorizing something and something's always informing our mind? We, have, we, have, we are believing something about everything right now. And that truth that we believe about everything right now affects us the next time we have a thought uh, that we have to grapple with. Think about how often we hear sound bites. Right. We hear sound bites, or now it's video bites, of vidbits, vidbits, uh, of you know, as we listen to the news, we, you know, we hear, we hear in our ears one statement from George Bush, or you know, one statement from uh, these different leaders or these different authorities on a topic. Well, then that one statement then sticks with us. I, I wonder, and maybe I'm crossing a boundary here, but I wonder if the catechisms as teaching tools are essentially broken up into sound bites. Now, if you read some of the catechisms, you go, "How on earth? that is the longest sound bite I have ever possible I have ever read." But it's it's true, is it it's in shorter uh statements. You you ask a question, "Who is God?" and the question comes, "This is who God is." And the answer, I'm sorry, the answer comes, "This is who God is." Now, you raised an issue, you've brought up your sons a couple times, and you right. brought up memorizing. Yes. Should we be doing this with our children? I Abs mean, our Abs children don't understand what justification... My kids have learned, you know, that sin is any want of conformity to, unto or transgression of the law of God. But some of my kids are awfully young. I, they don't understand all that that means. Right. Should I still be doing that with them? Yeah, absolutely. In the same way that all of us sort of instinctively want our kids to learn songs that have truths in them that are fun for them to sing. And we want to form their little minds by those songs. See, instinctively in our culture, we get songs. Um, the catechism is really an unsung song, in a sense. In that, in fact, uh, there's a great, is an absolutely great catechism tool uh, for teaching kids. There's a couple of them. Um, but one of them that you might use, uh, and I'm forgetting the guy's name, so we'll have to we'll put it up on the blog site of, of what it is. But basically, it is um, catechism keyed with songs. And so we use it around our table. Maybe I mentioned this before, but we use it around the table where you'll cover a series of questions and then you'll sing songs that reinforce the same truths of those questions. And it's tremendous because you work uh, in multiple ways together. But absolutely, because 
make no doubt about it. Have no doubt about it. Your kids have a worldview. It's impossible not to. So do you. All of us have, as I put it, as I teach it to people, all of us have a grid through which we pull the information that we run into in the world, the experiences that we have, the people that we run into. All of us are processing it somehow. And catechism is one of the ways that you can positively construct a biblical grid for yourself and for your kids. You're creating a framework on which they will later build. Absolutely. We talk about, uh, we talk about code hangers. You know, that when you learn a new truth, it's like being handed a coat hanger. Now, that coat hanger is no use unless you have something to hang it on. And, and by giving our kids this framework through the catechisms, and, and I would highly recommend, there's a series of children's catechisms for young children uh, by, done by Vic Lockman. It's got cartoons in it. It's just absolutely brilliant. Our kids love looking at it, and they're learning these truths um, they're not understanding them all, but as, as you said, Matt, they're learning things right now that they don't understand that's going to frame their worldview for tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So why shouldn't I be giving them, through the catechism, through a summary of what the Bible teaches, these frameworks that later they can hang the coat hangers on? And the same thing happens with the people in our congregation. By choosing to avoid... Uh, by choosing to do more than just what will help somebody, five things that will help somebody tomorrow be a better wife or husband or whatever, which we're not against, again, but just not every week. By avoiding that and by instead choosing consciously that the the maturing of Christians in a congregation uh, is a lifetime adventure and that they need more truth then they would imbibe themselves. And so we spoon-feed it to them through preaching, through reading, through catechism, so that they take all of the truth that they need, that they might be equipped for the work of the ministry that the Lord calls them to. As I'm doing the catechism with our kids, as we work through the kids' catechism, and we've published a document, uh, I'm, I'll probably put this up on our site or on the church site, uh, that gives you a, uh, a framework over the years, over the developmental years of the children, what questions to do, what songs to sing, what scriptures to memorize. A uh, very helpful tool for our church, sort of puts our church all on the same page in terms of we're all working together with our kids at the same place. Uh, but one thing, as I'm doing this with our kids, that I just love is the fact that I'm learning it too. And, you know, I wish... I, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Right. I wish I'd had this. I'd wish I'd had this kind of framework and an understanding of justification and of sin. Same question I, I mentioned earlier. What is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. Well, what's that teaching? That's teaching sins of omission and sins of commission. So our kids will, around the table will we'll play a little game. We'll name a sin. Somebody names a sin and then everybody asks, is that a sin of omission or a sin of commission? And we, we play this, and we just go through the different sins, so they're thinking about their hearts. Right. And they're thinking about... And so suddenly, then, when we're just going through everyday life, and my child sins. They have a hook to hang your, your reproof on. They do. They're, they're sitting on my lap, and they're maybe about to get a spanking, and 
we're talking about the sin, and I'm trying to shepherd their heart, trying to get them to see why the sin was wrong, and how this could harm others, and how it could harm them, and how it gets them, you know, as, as the shepherding a child's heart talks about, how it puts them in danger. Right. And I'm talking about this with my kids, and they begin to see why this sin is so bad, because they understand what sin is. Right. They understand some of the complexity. It's, it's in relationship to God, not mm-hmm. just to mommy or sissy, yep. that, it's, that there's something here that I've done against God. Now, they don't understand it all now, right. but over time, and you stick with it, and over time, as they grow, you see it, and you see that they're getting it more and more each year. It's, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. I wonder, um, how, how can we encourage uh, churches, maybe, if you, you, maybe that's what we've been doing, is encouraging churches that are not doing this to do this, uh, and to encourage churches that maybe had this as a part of their um, their form of worship for years and years, and they're wondering this doesn't really speak to people anymore. Maybe we should just chuck this. And I think that it, my experience in leading worship is it, when a particular aspect of worship doesn't speak to people, that usually is a cue to me that I either am not leading it well, or I'm not in leading it. Uh, helping people see the utility of it. Not that we're utilitarian, but it's, it, was, it was there in traditional forms of worship on purpose. And what we want to do is help people engage in what the purpose is of it being there, that they might enjoy it. Uh, one of the things that we do is we attempt to send our bulletin ahead of time via email to people. It's one of the blessings of a, uh, the Internet age, so that people are able to look over what to them is a more complicated statement of faith than they would use themselves and get familiar with it a little bit so they can earnestly and heartily confess. Um, quite frequently, in my, I'm a pastor of a small church, and quite frequently our confession of faith is louder than some of our singing. But people are enthusiastically expressing the summary of the truth. And that's a, that's a good thing. And we need to be doing that. Absolutely. If, if you care about pastors who are listening to this, if you care about the people of God, you've got to give them the whole counsel. And the only way you can get through that whole counsel is to do it in summary statements. You know, whether it's a statement of faith of your church or it's a historic confession of the church, you've got to have those statements so that the people are standing on the truth, and when they encounter error, they've got something to fight it with. Right. Because they, or they know instinctively, that's not right. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't, how often have you run into something, you go, you know, that doesn't sit right with me. Um, and... You, we do that through these. Conf- I mean, we do that through everything we do in the service. I, I think of verses to hymns that come back to me mm-hmm. that are a reminder of some of these great truths that are contained in the Scripture. I think of prayers that have been prayed that I've heard. I think of these statements. My, my wife was just telling me. I'm sure she won't uh, mind this, but my wife was just mind my sharing this. She was just telling me today that when the Heidelberg Catechism was read on Sunday, it really convicted her. Hmm. Because she saw something that she was doing. And it was actually, we're, we're in the part of the Heidelberg Catechism where it's going through the law of God. And it was simply the way that the Heidelberg Catechism summarized the law of God that helped her to get, 
to have new eyes on that particular commandment and to see how it applied to something very real in her life that she does every day. Hmm. Hmm. And that's great. That's just that's something that the confessions can do for us as well as reading old books. And, and like you said earlier, we don't just read old things because everything old is good and everything new is bad. Honestly, all, there's a lot of old heretics. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's the stuff that's old that's lasted. And something that I think we've mentioned here before, but we need to remember, if you, particularly if you're part of a confessional church, is that the Westminster Confession in particular was the basis for all of the great confessions. It was the basis for all of Presbyterianism, Presbyterian confessions. Now, I exclude from that the, the modern mainline denominations because they, they have rewritten the confessions. Uh, but it was the basis, it was what the London Baptist Confession was based upon. It's what the Congregationalist Confession was based upon. I, I was, uh, had a friend who was a pastor of a Congregationalist church, and he was showing me... Um, a statement that they had in their in their documents that said we hold to everything in the Westminster Confession of Faith except and they just had two exceptions which was church government because obviously they're congregational and not elder run as a Presbyterian would be and uh, the baptism of children right but apart from that everything else about the Westminster Confession so this is a confession uh, as well as the Heidelberg Confession the the uh, Canons of Dort um, all of these confessions, even even some of the older ones, uh, the Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, yeah, Nicene Creed, these have stood through the test of time. And while they're all changeable, and that's important, even though they're summaries of what the Bible teaches, and even though we we put them on a level lower than the Scripture, uh, the Scripture is the authority. Uh, we say that the confessions only hold authority so far as they teach what the scripture teaches. That being the case, we look at history and we say, wow, these things have held up. And even though they can be changed within our various denominations, even though there are ways to change them, uh, there are very few things. Uh, the things we see being changed are, you know, our peccadilloes. They're the, you know, they're where a, where a comma is. You know, or they're the tense of a verb, not uh, not the overall idea and thought. Um, now, for churches, there are going to be church. Some of you out there listening, that you're going to say, but the language is so hard. I've read some of the confessions, and I just don't get it. It's like when I pick up Jonathan Edwards, or I pick up one of the Puritans. I try, because everybody tells me I should read these old guys, but, oh, they're hard to read. It's like reading, it reminds me of my philosophy class in in college. I just couldn't get through the book. I found myself falling asleep every paragraph. You know, reading the same paragraph eight times and still not getting it. Uh, What do we do? What, What should those people do? Well, I think that one of the things to do is just to become a more proficient reader. Okay. I think that we're, as I said earlier, I think that we're a little bit of a lazy age, and it is not difficult. Um, if you understand English grammar, we can even help as we lead services, uh, how people ought to be thinking and reading them. Um, many times just reading it out loud uh, can help people understand it. Sometimes, as with all good reading, unless you have an exceptional vocabulary, you should always have a dictionary nearby. Um and we should be willing to put the work in because, uh, frankly, there's a lot of very 
uh, nuanced and detailed words in any good translation of the scriptures that you're going to have to learn. Uh, and the catechisms, the vast majority of the time, are using a similar terminology as the scriptures. Um, and so it's, what we have to do is consider that it's worth the work. It's worth the work of, of learning it. There are modern, more modernized versions of the confessions, is, which are which is that are okay. Can we? Yeah, absolutely. Those? Yeah, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. Um, I tend to um, when my when I first started in seminary, and my wife, uh, neither of us had background in the church, and she less background than I in, in Presbyterianism. Um, when we were first started in seminary, we would go through, and we're just working through the confession together. And I would do uh, what I affectionately call the Matt edited version, as I would read it out loud is I would edit it on the fly to update the English um, and, and replace, uh, in that there are good even replacements um, for where-ins and there and you know, that, that we can do uh, in a modern version that can make it more clear to people. Um, but we shouldn't avoid it just because it's challenging, in my mind. You know, Matt, there's a, um, there is a modern version uh, that the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, I... I'm guessing again. We'll put the website up on the on the site. Uh, but what they have is they have the the original next to the modern. Okay. In book format. That's, oh, that's great. That's a very helpful version for for folks to use. Well, I think we've sufficiently uh, addressed this topic, at least uh, begun to address this topic. We've talked about how uh, we've given some suggestions about how you might use it. Uh, maybe one thing I would add to that is simply that what you're talking about uh, in the catechism or in the confession might show up in a different place in the service depending on what it's talk- what it is, what it is talking about. Uh, for example, if you're going through the law of God, it's great to use it before a time of confession. Right. Uh, if you're talking about the majesty of God, you might want to put that right up at the front. Uh, if you're talking about our role. Uh, you might want to have that after the confession or maybe at the end as a, as a uh, pronouncement of what we're called to do, having now heard the word of God. There's a lot of places that you can put them. It's, we're not just doing them in the service to do them. We're doing them in order, to, uh, in order to use them as tools for the betterment of the body of Christ. So the body of Christ might grow and learn and, and mature and, and come to to know the truths that they, they claim to hold. So often we say, well, you know, my church believes. When in reality we need to say, we know what I believe. You know, and I believe this along with my church. And so I, together with my church, confess these truths that the church has always held. Yeah, there's, a, there's a difference. Uh, for a while there, our church was using a, a hymnal where the Apostles' Creed was put in the first person. Uh, I believe. Yes. And which is true. Um, it is something that we ought to personally believe. But in our congregation, we would replace that first I with a we. Even when doing the Apostles' Creed. Yeah. We would say, we believe. Um, something that we have a, a passion for in terms of corporate worship is that we endeavor that all things done in corporate worship are corporate. And that's very much against the spirit of our age. We're much more into having an individual statement of faith than we are against allying ourselves and saying, um, I'm really actually not all that significant. What I have to add to the theological texture of the ages is pretty much minuscule. 
I'll join my voice to those who've spent a lot of time pondering the scriptures and summarized it in a way that's heartening. And I'm willing to do that. Uh, and that's very much against the spirit of our age. It's, it's humility. Yes. It takes, a, it takes a great level of humility to be willing to say that what I'm a part of as a Christian in the church is not just about me. It's about Christ and everything he's been doing since the beginning of time. That's the the big picture that we take hold of when we read, when we proclaim aloud the words of the confessions and the catechisms. And that's what we need to hold to. That kind of humility and that kind of glorying in who God is. Uh, Now this... That is an issue that's going to come up again and again. In fact, uh, we just had some great questions on this month. Uh, folks have been uh, commenting on the blog, and uh, it, we're, we're planning some great things for the upcoming month to answer some of those questions, particularly uh, there were some great questions just this week about how we understand communion and what takes place there and, and the, how do we guard communion should, uh, should unbelievers Uh, be told you can't take this I mean questions like that some great questions on the website we're going to address those in some future podcasts maybe we can even get begin to get to some of those in the next months Uh, so we encourage you as you've listened to this podcast is go to the blog um, leave your comments leave your questions Uh, we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear maybe some of the ways that you're implementing these things in your churches and then we in turn can share some of that uh, here on the podcast. One book not to miss about catechism. Yes. Rediscovering Catechism by Van oh, Dyken, yes. Yes. which is a wonderful book. Uh, we'll put it up on the blog site, but Rediscovering Catechism by Van Dyken. Good book. Very good book. Um, well, uh, we leave you now with uh, a month, uh, the month of February, to enjoy. I, we hope you can get through this podcast in a month, and we hope that it uh, benefits you greatly. And we hope that you find yourself each week uh, rejoicing in the ordinary means, uh, those ways that God calls you to worship him and God calls you to grow in him. Uh, May the Lord bless you as you pursue him through those means this month and all year. 